Snap Studios. Step Judgment is brought to you by Progressive, where customers who save by switching their home and car save nearly $800 on average. Quote at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates, national average 12-month savings of $793 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary. Funerals, memorials can be wrenching, sad affairs as we come to grips with the reality of loss. But it's also true that memorials can be healing, uplifting, even joyful, gathering in community to pay respects. I recently attended the funeral of a beloved auntie, joining hundreds of people, friends, family I haven't seen in decades, some I've never seen at all, to celebrate and mourn this great woman with song, praise, weeping, laughing, ushering her to that final rest. And I know it sounds odd to say that her funeral was wonderful, but this funeral was wonderful. She was loved, and her final gift was her own ceremony. Because this alchemy of mourning and joy and release a spell giving permission at long last for the stories to come out people finally started talking stories kept secret for generations stories I didn't know funny stories ridiculous tales but also stories of hurt shame and almost all those stories are really stories about my grandfather he who shall not be named, a person I've never met. See, Papa was a rolling stone. No one, nobody can give the definitive count on just how many offspring that man had or how many children he abandoned. His children and his children's children left to struggle as best they could. But, but we all kind of have that look. We're walking down the street, minding my own business. I can see a person I've never met before in this life. And without a word, we both throw our arms wide for the embrace. Cousin! And that hug. It's a survivor's hug. Like a whisper saying, I know. I know. At my auntie's funeral, hearing those stories said aloud for the first time, it felt like a choir. An enveloping saying, we know. The dance step judgment going on a very different journey for a very different family. We're calling it Seeking Shizuko. My name is from Washington and please don't you dare wait to bring me my flowers when you're listening to Snap Judgment.
we begin in California's Central Valley where David Matsumoto, everyone calls him Moss, where he lives. And Moss comes from a long line of people who work the land. In Japan first, and then in the Central Valley. And Moss knows this land like the back of his hand. But then Moss learned there was one piece missing. Reporter Lisa Morehouse tells us the story. In the spring lady peaches, mm-hmm. there's six rows of that, six rows of nectarines that bloomed uh, a little earlier. And then back here are four rows of apricots. So these trees are like an old growth forest. They're 60 years old and no one keeps an orchard for 60 years, but they're still producing wonderfully. When he was a teenager, Moss planted these peaches with his father. When you plant something with someone, and in this case with my father, literally our fingerprints are on this. And yet new growth, and this is what I love about this, new growth is coming to fill it. So his spirit, his ghost is with me in the fields. And I've walked these fields with my grandmother. It's as if I could still walk with her ghost and we walk in silence together. I grew up as a Buddhist, so I didn't grow up with this idea of a heaven and hell. It was more like, no, there are just uh, life around you, spirits around you, ancestors around you. And that's how I interpreted ghosts. They keep me company. Moss knows the rhythms here, rhythms of farming, of family, and of history. And he thought he knew all of his family history until one day in 2012. It was a winter day. I wake up fairly early, five or six o'clock. You know, uh, house is quiet. You know, I make myself a cup of coffee uh, and maybe, you know, do some writing or something. Then he headed out to the orchards. Winter is the season for pruning fruit trees. It's nice, foggy, quiet. And fog really dampens all the sound. And I like that because you're kind of in this solitary world of yourself. When he came back to the house, he saw he had a phone message. Uh, we still had answering machines. Right? I remember seeing this light go on that you had a message for you. So I played the message, and it was this woman from this funeral home. He assumed it was a solicitation call. And the first thought I had is I remember looking at my hands and thinking, I'm not that old. Why am I planning my funeral? And I go, I'm not that old. So I ignored it. I almost erased the message. But he didn't erase it. Something the woman said was needling him. Her first line was something like, you know, uh, you know, is your mom Carol Sugimoto Masamoto? And I remember thinking, how did she know my mom's maiden name? So after a few days, he called the funeral home on his push-button phone. You know, so I'm, you know, pressing the button, going dee, 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 and thinking, all right, I'm going to be pretty systematic, saying, I don't understand what this is about. I'm not interested in a funeral. I'm not interested in planning anything. But how did you know my mom's name? But he was disarmed by the woman on the other end of the line. Her name was Renee Johnson, and her family owned the funeral home. 
very, very sweet woman, very kind woman. She told him she'd found his mom's name in his father's obituary. Moss had written that just a couple years earlier and had almost omitted his mom's maiden name. And I thought, why am I putting in the maiden name? And I do remember thinking, you know, I have to pay for this obituary by word count. So I could save a few cents by leaving out that name. But I said, no, it's tradition. You put it in. And that's how Renee found him. She said, I want to let you know that your mom's sister, Shizuko, is uh, has in a hospice program. She said Shizuko was 90 years old and had just suffered a stroke. You know, I just want to make sure she doesn't die alone. And I said, no. And I remember closing my eyes thinking, I think this woman is wrong because I know my family. And I remember repeating that in my head. I know my family. This is, can't be right. Every year, Masa's family would go to the mausoleum in Fresno on Memorial Day to pay respects to all the Sugimotos whose ashes were placed there. You know, and then there'd be these other Sugimoto names of children that died in infant mortality, and I never knew who they were, and we'd go in and bow to them. And we'd play these games, you know, how many aunts and uncles can you name? Never was Shizuko mentioned. There was virtually no, no, there was no family record of her at all. After I hung up the phone, I was in shock. I wanted to immediately run to my mom and say, Mom, I got this call. And I go, I can't do that. So he asked his wife and grown children, What do I do with this? And they said, well, maybe you should follow up to see if it's true. If it was true, that would mean Moss had a lost aunt, a woman he never knew existed, who lived in a care home just a few miles away from his farm. But his first stop would be to visit Renee at her funeral home in Fresno. He thought it would give him some clarity. And I remember trying to, in the back of my mind, thinking, so do I need to be skeptical? Do I need to be open and say, oh, this is so great? He drove past raisin crops and orchards filled with olives and peaches and then onto the freeway. And as he pulled up to the funeral home, in his mind, he was sure of one thing. It'll all be cleared up in an hour. It was an old mansion that someone had built 100 years ago, and they had now converted it over into a funeral home. So I felt very comfortable going in there, because you're actually walking into someone's home. He walked up a grand staircase to meet Renee. She's a you know, tiny, gentle woman. She sat down, showed me the 1930 census, and I went, my gosh, you could see these names. First one was Masao Sugimoto and Lorada Sugimoto, my oldest aunt. Uh, and then came uh, uh, Teruo, then it was Takashi, George, and then my mom as the youngest. Among all these names, Shizuko Sugimoto, born October 13, 1919, seven years before his mom. As Moss stared at the census, Renee explained that Shizuko had been a ward of the state since 1942, that the government had set aside little sums of money for decades so that when she eventually died, she wouldn't be buried in a pauper's cemetery. Renee's funeral home got the contract for these last rites. And Renee had this golden heart of not wanting this person to die alone. 
that's why she didn't have to look up on the 1930 census to try to find family of Shizuko. She didn't have to go through all those extra expenses. That's not written in the contract that they had, but she did. She wanted to see if she could find family for Shizuko. This is so intense. And I remember sitting there almost shaking because I can't believe all these forces that had to come together for me to be right at that spot. Moss got the information for Shizuko's care home, thanked Renee, and left. And I remember getting in my car, taking a deep breath, and thinking, should I go right now to see Shizuko? Moss knew that she was in hospice just down the road and that she might die alone soon. And I didn't because this is just too much at one time. I needed to go home and process this a little bit more. There aren't a lot of facts because there's a lot of blank spots here, but that doesn't mean Shizuko didn't exist. Immigrants have history, but it's often not documented. My grandparents were illiterate. They didn't write meaning there was no written history of them. But that doesn't mean they didn't exist. So I thought about that when I was thinking of Shizuko. Just because we didn't have photographs, we didn't have documents, we didn't have letters you know, written to her or anything like that, doesn't mean she didn't exist. And after sleeping on it, Moss felt ready to meet Shizuko. So I'm driving to this assisted care center and, and it's in West Fresno where a lot of the Japanese-American population live. The Buddhist church is there. I had traveled through this uh, frequently. It's an older assisted care facility, you know. No place to park. I park on the street. And as soon as you step in, first thing you smell is a little urine. Moss heard unexpected grumbles and cries and saw patients moving slowly down the hallways using walkers and wheelchairs. I was saying, okay, this isn't the, the really country club-like, you know, assisted care center. Made me nervous, right? Well, how's the care here for her? He found the facility's office. And I said, hey, I'm here to see Shizuko Sugimoto. And they looked at said, Shizuko, oh, you mean Sugi? I went, okay, I guess it's Sugi. Oh, she's down in this room down the hall. And outside the room, I see the name placard, and it says Sugi. And I says, I think I'm in the right place. I step into the room, and it was a, she had a roommate who was not doing well and was just talking and whining and crying. And then I turned to Shizuko, Sugi, just laying there quietly curled up, white hair in a little ball, because she was in a coma, just laying there. And I went, Huh, you know, and I look at her, and it's not like oh, she looks like a Sugimoto. No, all right, she 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 was an older Asian woman, you know. And I remember reaching out and touching her hand, and it was warm but not hot but not cold. And something about holding her hand made me feel she's real. Did I know for sure everything? No, but I think I found this lost aunt. At this point, Moss was almost ready to tell his family. Almost. He decided to do one more search for records at the Central Valley Regional Center in Fresno. 
And the woman there was great because she pulled records and she actually let me look at some records that technically I wasn't supposed to. Shizuko had been in different institutions and care homes across the state. At that point, I said, Shizuko is family. This is my aunt. Now let me go talk with my mom. That was probably the, one of the hardest things to do. Because how do you tell her that? I started thinking through different approaches. What time of day do I do it? You know, what's my spirit? And I said, okay, it should be later in the day when she's calm. I'm done with farm work. It should be just her and me. And I will sit her down. His mother lived about half a mile away, across the orchards. So I drove in my old beat-up pickup over there, drove into the, par- uh, into the yard. Uh, you know, dust is getting kicked up and everything. They often visited a few times a day, so Ma showing up wasn't unusual. He went into the house. And I said, Mom, I need you to sit down. And then I tried to be serious, but yet not solemn. I said, Mom, I, I got something to tell you. And I said, you remember Aunt Shizuko? And my mom goes, oh yeah, Aunt Shizuko, she died long ago. And I said, take a deep breath, Mom. She's alive in Fresno. And there was silence. There was silence. And, and I grew up in a household of long pauses, all right, because our family were not storytellers. We weren't verbal. We were very, very, very quiet. And so there's this long pause. And then my mom said, that can't be. And then I repeated, Mom, she's alive in Fresno. I saw her a few days ago. And I watched her eyes just kind of wandering because she was running through seven decades of life at that moment. When he asked if she'd like to visit Shizuko, she just put her head down. So I remember being a little confused, a little, uh, 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 little disappointed, I guess. It was like, oh, I think I solved the family history. And realizing, no, I, had, I just opened the door. I realized there's so much I don't know. Why did his mom think Shizuko was dead? When was the last time his mother saw her? Why was she institutionalized? Why had he never heard of this aunt? But he knew his desire to get these answers was probably nothing compared to what his mom might have been feeling. The next day, I went over to go see her. She goes, I do want to go see Shizuko. So I said, all right, let's go this afternoon. And because my mom couldn't hear that well, we drove in silence. They walked through the halls of the care center until they saw Shizuko's nickname, Sugi, on the door. This time, they were all alone in the room. Just Moss, his mom, and Shizuko, still comatose, curled up in bed. And my mom took one look, and she started tearing up, and she grabbed Sugi's hand. And then my mom, again, she, she couldn't hear, but she could speak. She starts talking to Shizuko. She's saying, Shizuko, this is Carol, this is Yukino, this is your sister, I'm here, I'm here for you. Moss stood across the hospital bed from his mom. Up to this point, it was me trying to piece together the story of this lost aunt. Now, it was the story of a lost sister.
now that Moss is reunited with his mom and her long-lost sister, will he be able to learn how they became separated in the first place? When Snap Judgment continues. Support for Snap Judgment comes from Odoo. What is Odoo? Well, Odoo is the only software your business will ever need. Featuring a suite of integrated business applications, Odoo connects your business operations together so you can get more done in less time. Odoo has apps for everything. CRM, accounting, sales, HR, inventory, marketing, manufacturing, you name it. Odoo's got it. To learn more, visit odoo.com slash snap. That's O-D-O-O dot com slash snap. Welcome back to Snap Judgment, the Seeking Shizuko episode. When last we left, Moss learned he had an aunt that he never knew existed and lived only a few miles away. But now she's in a coma, and he's just reunited his mother with her long-lost sister. Snap Judgment. Moss called his mom's two remaining siblings, George and Lorada, who lived in Los Angeles. He got in touch with cousins. Over the next few weeks, family trekked to Fresno to see Shizuko. Moss decided he was going to learn all he could about the aunt he never knew existed. But he soon found his mom, his aunt, and uncle, they were reluctant to talk. And Moss knew he'd have to approach them gently. Because no one knows the whole story or is willing to tell you the whole story. You know, so everybody told me slightly different parts of it. Slowly, Moss started to piece together Shizuko's timeline with a family history he already knew. Shizuko was born just south of Fresno in 1919. Both of my grandfathers were second sons. They weren't going to inherit the rice field in Japan. In the early 1900s, they came to California, to the Central Valley. And they were farm workers, and that's an important distinction. They were forced to work on other men's farms for low wages. Racist laws kept them from owning property and applying for citizenship. Shizuko was a typical farm girl playing in the fields. Realized the family was poor, they didn't have childcare. You would take kids out into the fields with you. I know that because I did that growing up. When she was five years old, Shizuko got terribly sick. After she came out of her fever, she lost most of her speech. The family never took her to a doctor. And I kept thinking, how come they didn't get medical care? But then you stop and think, oh, wait a minute. I wasn't there in 1925. They lived in a rural area. They didn't speak English. They were immigrants. They were Buddhists, and many hospitals were Christian. There was no health care for them. The family later learned Shizuko had had meningitis. Masa's relatives told him she stopped growing intellectually. I know she never went to school, right? uh, because there weren't special ed programs back then. Uh, uh, so they tried to take care of her best they could through the Great Depression. From what Masa's mom told him, even though Shizuko couldn't talk, she found ways to communicate. She grew up afraid of Shizuko. Why? Because Shizuko loved to throw things. And my mom was seven years younger, right? So Shizuko as a, you know, 15-year-old is, you know, loved to be feisty, as my mom would call it, and pick up things and throw it at my mom, who was an eight-year-old. And my mom was scared of that. 
You know, I don't blame her, but that was that family dynamic. But she was allowed to be feisty. But the family couldn't always keep Shizuko safe. In interviewing my mom, my aunt, my uncle about this, and they were understandably reluctant to say a lot. Uh, They didn't know a lot, too. One day, when Shizuko was a teenager, she was home alone, maybe while her family was working in the fields. When they came home, her clothes were torn. Obviously, Shizuko was upset. My aunt said, there were bad neighbor boys. And after what they did to Shizuko, my grandmother cut her hair off so she'd look like a boy. Moss doesn't want Shizuko remembered for this assault, for one of the worst moments of her life. Luckily, there were stories of what brought Shizuko joy, too. My grandfather was a carpenter, and he made these intricate wooden pagodas and buildings in this little miniature garden. Shizuko would spend hours there. My mom used the word, she'd be lost in the garden. And I loved that idea, she would be lost. And that's where she found comfort, I think. Shizuko would have seen her family and their neighbors doing the traditional folk dance, tankobushi, with dancers moving as if they carried shovels. With his shovel in his hands, Moss demonstrates, dipping, turning, and reaching. So when the music cues up, you would move forward and shovel, 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 stop, pick it up, toss, toss, turn, turn, push, push. Moss likes to imagine Shizuko wandering around the miniature pagodas in her father's garden, moving like the dancers she'd seen, shovel, shovel, toss, toss. Evacuation. More than 100,000 men, women, and children, all of Japanese ancestry, removed from their homes in the Pacific Coast states to wartime communities established in out-of-the-way places. But after the bombing of Pearl Harbor, Masa's grandfather removed the pagodas. Shizuko stopped wandering in the garden. Within months, the family would be sent to jail. They were assigned to Gila River, an incarceration camp in Arizona. The entire community bounded by a wire fence and guarded by military police, symbols of the military nature of the evacuation. The family had no idea how long they'd be at Gila River, what the conditions were, if there would be any way to care for someone with special needs. They had no options. It was a crazy, chaotic time. So in desperation, they contacted the local sheriff asking if the state would take care of Shizuko. Masa's Aunt Lerada told him what she remembered from that day. My aunt Shizuko was holding my grandmother, her mom. The sheriff came and pulled them apart. And my aunt realized she's been taken away and started, she couldn't talk much, but she could say a few words. And she was saying, mama, mama. And... I think of my grandmother and, you know, her heart was crushed because here she can't take care of this child. A week later, the family got on the train and was taken to the prison camps at Gila River, where they'd have to stay for more than three years. When they came back from the Arizona desert prison, they were starving. It was 1945. Masa's mom was 19. 
and the family was worse off than ever. They had no work. People treated them like the enemy. They were being spit on. They could not have taken care of Shizuko. But Shizuko's mother and brother spent years searching for her anyway. They uh, locate Shizuko in a mental hospital, in one of those big ones that had thousands of patients. Uh, Saw her, and the word was that they said at least she's been fed, she's been taken care of. So maybe she's better off there because we can't take care of her because we're struggling just to feed ourselves here. The family never spoke of Shizuko again. So Masa's mom, the youngest, assumed her sister had died. When I started piecing all the story together, I started getting angry. You know, angry at, you know, decisions that were made, angry at alien land laws, alien, you know, angry at internment. At the same time, he started talking to Shizuko's caregivers. As his aunt lay curled up in her bed in a coma, they told him what she was like before the stroke. They actually would say, we love Miss Sugi. Oh, she's so full of life. She'd sneak up on someone, pinch them, and run away giggling. Shizuko wandered the care home halls so much that the staff got her those tennis shoes that lit up when she walked. She'd put on those, those tennis shoes and walk up and down the hall and watch the lights go sparkling as she ran up and down and ran back, and she would do that for hours. And they go, she loved hot coffee in the morning. And when she was finished with her cup, she would throw the cup over her shoulder. So they quickly realized that they had to switch cups from a glass cup or a plastic cup to a styrofoam cup. And they moved her seat so that her back was to a wall and her cup would hit that and not another person. That was her trademark. She was carefree, free enough to do that. As Moss was listening to these stories, building an image in his mind of the woman his aunt had become, We were planning her funeral. Uh, The doctors that I saw and nurses, the nursing staff at the assisted care center all thought she would die. The caregivers said, "Uh, we'll see. They figured out a way of feeding her, not intravenously, not through a tube. They figured out a way where they could tickle her and she would kind of stir from her comatose state. They would give her liquid diet. And I remember I started writing, you know, notes and letters to all the relatives, giving them updates that Shizuko is still in hospice. It had been three months since Moss got that first fateful call. Then he got another one, this time from the care home. Hey, you know, your aunt, she's up. I said, what? Ah, she woke up. You should come visit her. When Moss arrived at the home, one protective caregiver asked who he was. And I said, well, I'm her nephew. I'm her family. And he looked at me and he goes, where have you been all these years? And it just hit me right here because he was right. And it made me realize they were her family. I wanted this kind of this image you see in a, in, a, in a movie or something where she looks at me, I look at her, and we start crying, and we hug each other. No, she didn't know who I was. So I go up to her, right? What do I say? Hey, I'm your nephew. Good to meet you. She looks at me, I look at her, and then she kicks me. She kicks me. And I go, what? And I look, and I realize she wanted her shoe tied. 
and it was the perfect way to be reintroduced to Shizuko and her story. Moss called his out-of-town family and told them the news. They started coming to the Central Valley to visit again. It was a very, very different type of dynamic because people tried to talk with Shizuko. And she did not recognize anyone. I remember my aunt coming and started speaking to her in Japanese. Shizuko now roamed the halls in a wheelchair and sometimes allowed Moss to help her around people who blocked her path. You know, she didn't kick me anymore, you know. Uh, you know, she would touch my face, you know, which I thought was a sign that I was, I was something to her. The more time he spent with Shizuko, the more stories he heard about her, the more any anger he had once felt dissipated. I began to realize, no, this family secret isn't depressing. It's about life. She's alive in Fresno. She's part of this family coming back together. It's really about like a family reunion with the past in the present. And I think my grandmother, my uncle, my family let go of Shizuko, believing she was better off. And I have to say, she survived 70 years of institutional care. The caregivers said she was full of life. And I just have to say, I think that was the right choice. Moss and his family had about a year and a half with Shizuko. When she died at age 93... She was cremated, and I got a niche for her along with the family. And now she was finally united. They could mark the passing of a beloved family member, not a stranger. At her memorial service, Moss told the story he'd heard from a caregiver about how every morning Shizuko would toss her coffee cup over her shoulder. So I gave everybody a styrofoam cup uh, and said, I want you to pretend to drink and throw the cup over your shoulder. It was amazing. All the family couldn't do that. They were looking behind her saying, I'm sorry, I don't want to hit you. It was classic, right? We were restricted by what we thought was proper behavior. Where Shizuko, Miss Sugi, was free enough just to toss it. A very, very big thank you to David Matsumoto for sharing his story. Mas wrote about Shizuko in his book, Secret Harvest. And the story, it's part of Lisa's podcast, California Foodways. Get support from California Humanities and the Food and Environmental Reporting Network. Recently, Lisa drove down to Fresno to see Moss again. This one might be rooted a little deeper. We're in a row of spring lady peaches Moss planted in 1985 when his daughter was born. He's going to plant a new tree, but first he's removing parts of an old stump that's rotted out. The old tree has been pulled out. It's giving up its space. It's time for this tree to move on, and then we'd plant a new tree in this spot. Aunt Shizuko's now in his pantheon of ghosts another resilient ancestor helping out with the peaches. He farms with her spirit now. There is this theory, right, about how trees and plants talk to each other. You know, would the new roots say, oh, I'm in this comfort zone of one of my ancestors? 
Or does the old decaying tree just make the perfect soil for the new one? And I would like to think it's both. The original score for this piece was by Dirk Schwartzhoff. It was produced by Lisa Morehouse. Now, after the break, we're going to a very special pond to meet a very special legend. Stay tuned. Snap Judgment. When I was a kid, growing up in rural Michigan, we would wait for the pond to freeze over every winter to test the ice for proper thickness. We tease and tease this kid, Joey. Tell him to go walk in the middle of the lake. Go out there, jump up and down. And if he did it without falling in, we're good to go. Peter Aguero, he knows what it's like to be Joey. When I was 13 years old, Nellie's Pond froze for the first time since my mom was a little girl. And it's a Saturday afternoon, and I'm putting on my jacket and my hat, and I'm getting ready to get out of the house. In the living room, my mother's crimping my sister's hair because it's 1990, and that's what you do. She's of the opinion that my sister's hair is, quote, a rat's nest. And my sister's rebuttal is, quote, I hate you. My dad's laying on the floor on his side, chain-smoking Marlboro Reds, watching college football. One of the routines was uh, every Saturday night uh, around dinner time, there was a Saturday night fight. Somebody would say something which would remind somebody of something else, and then somebody would explode and leave the table, and two people would cry, and somebody would have to do the dishes every week. So Saturday afternoon was always kind of the undercard, getting ready for that fight. And I just wanted to get out of the house. I leave my family. I go to the garage and get my bike and ride a couple minutes over to Nellie's Pond. I push my bike through the little sliver of woods and I go out onto the ice. Nellie's Pond's about the size of two football fields. And in the middle, there's a bunch of kids that had cleared off the snow and they were playing ice hockey. I never played hockey when I was a kid. There was too much equipment. All I could afford was a stick. But I didn't have to play. I could just ride my bike around the perimeter of the game. So that's what I'm doing. And I'm listening to the crunch of my fat bicycle tires on that lacy scrim of snow that forms just above the surface of the ice. And I stop over on the side, and I'm looking up through the denuded branches of a tree. And it's beautiful. Just then, I, I hear laughter, and my, my hat's pulled from my head, and it's thrown up in the tree in front of me. It's my favorite hat. It's a green and gray Philadelphia Eagles knit hat with a pom-pom on top. I hear laughter, and I look behind me, and there's Eric. Eric's got a big pumpkin head, and his hair's too blonde. You know those kids' his hair is just too blonde? That's Eric. He's a perfect henchman. 
And I turn around and I see his boss, Mike Dawes. Mike's got a flat top haircut and these poor cyan eyes and braces. He looks like a pig the lawnmower and he's got his hands clamped on my hands on the handlebars. And he's yelling in my face. He wants to fight. Come on, there's your hat, it's up in the tree, what are you gonna do, kick your ass? He's screaming at me. Now, Mike's a year older than me, he's a big stocky kid. Now, I'm, I'm at 13, I'm almost six feet tall, and I, but I haven't really grown into my size yet. And he's, he's trying to get me to fight. Come on, what are you gonna do? And the hockey game stops, and uh, the kids are all watching. The three or four dads in the corner that are drinking coffee are looking too. And I'm, I'm in the middle on the spotlight. I didn't even ask for him. I never liked the fight. And I don't know what I did to this kid. I don't know what he's looking for. But he's just screaming in my face, come on, what are you going to do? And I just sit there, and I just take it. And I stare off in the middle distance and wait for it to be over. I guess after a minute or two, he gets what he was looking for, or he didn't get what he was looking for. And he kicks my bike tire and walks away and says one more time, nice hat. Then he's gone. The hockey game starts again, and the three or four dads in the corner drinking coffee start watching the game, except for one of them. He's looking at me, and I can see him when he sips his coffee. I think he's thinking, I'm glad that's not my kid. I leave my hat for dead, and I turn around and push my bike through the little sliver of woods, and I ride a couple minutes back home. I put my bike in the garage, and I walk past my family, and I go upstairs, and I turn off my bedroom lights, and I lay on the bed and put a pillow over my face because I don't want to talk to anybody. I'm laying there, and I hear footsteps coming up the stairs. They're big. It's my dad. My dad grew up in Northeast Philly. He was a tough guy, and he always reminded me of that. He always wanted me to be a tough guy. And I knew I'd never measure up because I never had. A few years before, I won a dance contest, and I was excited about it. Instead of congratulating me, he called me a sissy. He's going to have a field day with this one. He walks into my room, and I feel his big body sit on the foot of my bed. He says, what's the matter, pal? And from under the pillow, I say, nothing. And he lifts up the pillow. He says, what's the matter, pal? And I put it back down. I say, nothing. He takes the pillow. He throws it across the room. He says, what's the matter, pal? And I tell him, I say, Mike Dawes. He nods his head. And I tell him the story of what happened. He says, okay. And he crooks his finger. He says, come with me. I follow him to the phone. It's a rotary phone. And he looks up D for Dawes and dials six of the numbers, and I'm thinking, okay, he's gonna call Mike's dad and tell Mike's dad to tell Mike to stop bothering me. I, well, that's good. But then he dials the seventh number and his finger's right there on that seventh number, and he hands me the receiver, and he says, you're gonna call him and you're gonna tell him you're gonna fight him tomorrow at three o'clock. And he lets go of the number, and the rotary dial seats back in, and then it's ringing. And all I want to do with this phone ringing in my ear is just run away. But my dad's eight feet tall and 800 pounds to me. He's the biggest man in the world, and I can't get around him. A woman answers the phone. I say, hi, can I talk to Mike? She says, who's this? I say, tell him it's Pete. She says, okay. I hear Mike come to the phone. He says, "Uh, what do you want? What do you want? 
And I said, hey, Mike, uh, I'm going to fight you tomorrow at Nelly's Pond at 3 o'clock. And I see my dad nod his head. And Mike says, okay, I'll kick your ass tomorrow. I say, okay, thanks, Mike. And I hang up the phone. My dad crosses his arms and nods his head one more time. And he takes me out to the garage. And that's when my dad starts to show me how to fight. You know, my dad didn't understand that kind of son that he had. You know, the kind of son that he had like to make things with construction paper and go down by the river and read a book. But, you know, by him showing me how to fight, I could tell that he was trying to turn me into the son that he could understand. You know, one that wasn't a constant disappointment, one of the kind of kid that he knew, that he knew. So I went along with it. He holds up his hands and he says, okay, you're right-handed, you're going to stand like this and you're going to jab with your left to get space and then when you can, you're going to throw your strong right and he shows me how to make my fist correctly and he shows me how to stand and use my weight behind the punches. I feel my fists hitting his hands like meat on meat and, and I'm believing in myself, like maybe this is going to work out and, you know, I, I, I feel strong. He pats me on the back, he says, you're going to do fine, son, and I believe it. I'm going to do fine. We go inside, and during dinner, my sister says something that reminds my mom of something. She says something that makes my dad explode, and he leaves the table. My mom and my sister start to cry, and I have to do the dishes. Pretty good Saturday night fight, all things considered. That night, I have a hard time getting to sleep. I'm nervous, because I'm 13 years old, and the next day, I got to schedule a fight like I'm George Foreman. I eventually drift off, and the next morning, I wake up, and I get my second favorite hat. It's just red. My dad's laying on the floor, chain smoking Marlboro Reds and watching NFL football. My mom's combing out my sister's hair. It's a rat's nest. I hate you. It's time for me to go. I push my bike through that little sliver of woods and I go out to the ice and it's empty. All the kids are somewhere else. I have the pond all to myself and I ride right out into the middle. And it's 2.50. And I'm straddling my bike all by myself. It's 2.55 and 2.57, 2.59. I'm just standing there and I'm looking up at the sky. It's one of those slate gray winter skies that looks like it's about two feet above your head. So three o'clock, all alone, it's just me and the sky. At 3.05, I see a rustle in the bushes across the way, and I, I, I start up, and, and nothing. It must be a dog or a squirrel or something. At 3.10, I put my bike down, and I start to bounce around on the balls of my feet, and I'm looking all over the place, waiting for this kid to walk onto the ice. 3.15, at 3.25, 3.27, I go get a branch from a deadfall, and I, I start to throw it up on my hat. And on the fourth try, it knocks my hat out of the branch and I catch it in my hand and I put my red hat in my pocket and put my eagle's hat back on and it's 3.39 and I realize he's not showing up I get back on my bike I push it through that little sliver of woods and I take the long way home I put my bike in the garage and I walk past my family without even looking at them and I go upstairs and I turn off my bedroom light and I lay on the bed and I put a pillow over my face because I don't want to talk to anybody. And I wait for those footsteps to come up the stairs. And I'm waiting for him to ask me what happened. I don't know what to tell him. I just know that he's going to be disappointed in me. 
I'm not going to be the son that he wanted. But I never hear those footsteps. And he never comes up. And he never mentions it again. Years and years later, I'm in the Jug Handle Inn in Maple Shade, New Jersey. I'm drinking beer and eating chicken wings with my dad. Because that's what you do when you turn 21. You go to a local bar and you drink beer and eat chicken wings. And we're talking, and I'm telling about college, and he's telling me about his life. And, you know, we're kind of two strangers sitting there. After a minute, he says, uh, hey, you remember that kid, Mike Dawes? He says, yeah. Hey, you remember when you went to go fight him at Nellie's Palm when you were a kid? I say, yeah, I do remember that. He says, after you left the house, I went around the long way to the other side of the pond. I hid in the bushes. I stayed there, and I watched you stand there alone in the middle of the ice, and I knew you were scared, and I saw you standing there anyway. And I was never more proud of you than I was in that moment. I look at him for a second. I don't know what to say, so I don't say anything. And inside, I just kind of shake my head. There's a lot of other stuff for him to be proud of. I finish my chicken wing, and I take the bone, and I just add it to the pile. Peter Aguero is a world-renowned storyteller and performer who lives with his wife in New York City. The original score was done by Leon Morimoto. It was produced by Anna Adlerstein and Joe Rosenberg. Know this. Every story is a journey to someone else's experience. You get to see the world through someone else's eyes. Let someone know by sending your friends and your enemies the Snap Judgment Podcast. They will be forever grateful, I promise. Snap is brought to you by the team that avoids walking on thin ice, except for the Uber producer, Mr. Mark Wistich, who no matter how much we scream, insists there's no such thing as thin ice. Team Snap is Nancy Lopez, Pat Machini Miller, and Assessment. Wenzel Gorio, John Facile, Shayna Sheely, Taylor DeCott, Flo Wiley, Bo Walsh, Marissa Dodge, David Exame, and Regina Cariaco. And this, this is not the news. No way is this the news. In fact, you go to a family event where your uncle tries to explain the concept of triple cousins to you and you could stop them right there. And say that absolutely no way, no how will you stand to hear any more family secrets right now. Not one more under any circumstance. It's enough already. True story. And you would still, still not be as far away from the news as this is. But this is PRN.